0: Welcome to the Breaking In Startups podcast, where we teach you how to get high paying jobs in tech in less than 12 months. For those of you that don't know, my co-host, Artur Timor, and I moved to the Bay Area in 2014 without knowing anybody. And we figured out how to get jobs in a short amount of time and decided to launch the Breaking Stars podcast to share stories of other people like us that figured out how to break into tech. Through that experience, we realized that sharing stories of people that broke into the tech was not enough to help billions of people. So we decided to create an app called Career Karma, which is the product that we wish that we had when we were breaking into the tech. For those of you that don't know what Career Karma is, Career Karma is an app that matches you to job training programs called coding boot camps. And we give you support through a group of people called a squad that helps you not just get into a coding bootcamp, but also have support during the coding bootcamp, during the job search and for the rest of your life. Today's podcast episode is an origin story about career karma and how it was created, how we were able to figure out how to get into Y Combinator, raise $2 million and all kinds of other things about how Archer, Timur and I first met even before we broke into the world of technology. If this is your first time listening to the Breaking Stars podcast and you want to become a software engineer, make sure you download the Career Karma app. Uh, Leave us a review on iTunes or any other uh, place where our podcast is listed that you are listening to. Make sure you send us an email with feedback to Ruben Archer, Timor at BreakingStars.com. Like our Facebook page, join our Facebook community, tell your friends, and without further ado, uh, let's break in. One more thing, actually. I want to give a huge shout out to our brother, Quincy Larson, CEO of Free Code Camp, because he is the one that actually interviewed me to share this story that was posted on his uh, podcast originally. So huge, huge, huge shout out to Quincy Larson. And again, without further ado, let's break in. See you there.
1: Welcome to the Free Code Camp podcast. I am Quincy Larson, the teacher who founded Free Code Camp. And today I'm talking with Ruben Harris who runs Career Karma. It's a social network for people who are interested in attending coding boot camps. And he also hosts the awesome Breaking Into Startups podcast. Ruben just finished Y Combinator, which is a startup accelerator where he and his team raised their first round of venture capital funding. Ruben grew up in Atlanta, and he worked in finance before getting into tech. He's going to talk about all that. He's also going to talk about how he met his future co-founders, Ukrainian-born brothers Arthur and Timur Meister, years ago, and the three of them agreed to spread out, get jobs in different industries, and then later regroup and build a startup together. He is also going to share his insights on coding boot camps, what he learned going through Y Combinator, and he's going to talk about this close bond he's forged with his co-founders. Hey, Ruben, thank you so much for joining us on the Free Co Camp podcast. How's everything
2: going with you? It's an honor. I've been a big fan of Free Co Camp for a long time. Um, we appreciate you joining the Breaking and Startups podcast a while ago. I'm happy to be on your show as well.
1: Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for having me on the Breaking and Startups podcast. I'm going to link to that episode in the show notes if anybody's interested in listening to this. But today, we want to learn about you, and you have one of the most exciting origin stories of anybody we've had on the Free Camp podcast, you grew up in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, city in the south for all of our international listeners. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about Atlanta and your childhood there.
2: Yeah, so I was born in Loma Linda, California. Um, I moved to Atlanta when I was four years old. No, when I was one year old, and I've been playing the cello since I was four years old. Uh, My my father's from Georgia, uh, Blakely, Georgia, my mother, uh, she was born in Nebraska, but grew up in New York. Growing up, my parents wanted to give me things that nobody could take away from me but myself, and that was language and music. Uh, so my first language is Spanish. And then, like I said before, I've, I've been playing the cello since I was young. Um, and so growing up, you know, it was only Spanish as, as a language, Spanish church, Spanish music, Spanish everything. Um, so when I went to school, I couldn't speak English. and From the beginning, it was all about making sure that we understood why learning an instrument is more than music. And so I'm very grateful to to my parents. So um, I can talk a little bit more about Atlanta, Georgia, but that's kind of like a a brief intro to the things that were foundational to me. Uh, So I'm very grateful to them.
1: Yeah, so Atlanta is a pretty cool city. I've been there. Uh, I, as a child, I visited the Coca-Cola Museum. <laughs> I think mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm, like the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. thing that sticks out the most. And, uh, you know, of course, the Atlanta Braves baseball team, during my childhood, they were just like on a, on a real streak. Tell us a little bit about Atlanta for people who haven't visited before.
2: Yeah, so Atlanta is a beautiful place. Um, it's very diverse, um, very powerful tech industry, especially in fintech. Growing up, I didn't know that Black people were minority. There is a very strong entertainment culture there as well, in addition to political and business, and like Coca-Cola and Home Depot, like you said before, great sports energy as well. What's interesting about the South is that people are, they have something called Southern Hospitality, uh, where everybody greets each other and is nice to each other. It's very collaborative, um, less confrontational. They're still, um, just like in any, any city, there's still times where there's confrontation, but overall people are amicable. And so being polite and being a gentleman has been part of my, my upbringing uh, for a long time. It's a very music heavy culture as well, which is part of uh, my influence. And increasingly people are leveraging the thriving food industry as well. I've been building a lot of businesses out there. I think, I think Grubhub is based there. MailChimp is there Uh, There's a lot of really cool tech companies that are in Atlanta that are cabbages there in fintech that are doing some really cool things. And so I've always been around people that were entrepreneurial, that believed that they could achieve things. I had examples of success that were from all walks of life, and I didn't see my background as a detriment. I saw it as a form of empowerment, and I, I really valued being different, and I saw that as a superpower.
1: And a big part of that is how your parents brought you up. And and I understand your parents had a really active role in your life.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, when you think about music and why learning an instrument is more than music, um, you're learning a lot about stretch targeting, like you're setting a goal every week that pushes you hard. Uh, You're learning a lot about objective and subjective analysis, attention to detail, competition, Uh, Persistence and doing things that you don't like, how to work with others, how to follow, and a lot of things around mastery. And so those concepts were very important. But I think most importantly, accepting myself, uh, valuing myself, and just believing that I can do anything, but that life is bigger than me and that the ultimate calling is to serve others. Um, And so my, my parents drilled that deeply into me. Um, I didn't always listen until I was older, but the things have started to ring true lately.
1: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your parents and their life. Yeah. I guess they moved from California over to Atlanta and in search of kind of a different
2: life. Yeah. So my, my father's an oncologist and a hematologist. My mother is a psychologist. I have two brothers and sisters. I have a little brother who's a software engineer. He went through a boot camp called App Academy. And I have another sister who's a teacher as well. My parents met in medical school in Lumberland, California, which is where I was born. And my father is a musician as well. So my father plays guitar. He plays piano. He plays saxophone. He grew up around a lot of educators. And so when we would ask, what's the point of of learning this instrument? Um, He would emphasize that the ability to play an instrument well is a byproduct of the life skills that you're learning. My mom a lot of her psychology work was focused on play therapy and, and education, project based learning. And she really pointed out the importance of learning things in a way that was fun because children rise to the occasion and do things that are hard because they don't know that it's supposed to be hard. Um, and so I think my parents did a really good job of introducing me to difficult things that I didn't realize were difficult, and I would accomplish them early without realizing what I was doing. And that's something that has persisted throughout the rest of my life. And also, my parents also emphasized the importance of finding value in things that I don't like and like doing it anyway. They wouldn't let me do anything else until I did it. Um, and then reflecting on it to understand what the value was. And I think most importantly, um, because we grew up Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, which is a Christian religion, um, every Sunday on Friday to Sunday on Saturday, We took breaks to spend time with each other, to spend time in nature, to spend time with friends, to really reset every weekend and and get our mind right and our spirit right. I went to only Adventist schools throughout my entire life outside of Montessori, which is where I first got introduced to the cello.
1: Yeah, and Montessori's for people who are listening who aren't familiar with it, it's the teachings of Dr. Montessori. She came up with this whole early childhood education scheme and uh, it's very popular here in the U.S. So, yeah, it's it's not surprising that you went to Montessori, I guess, given precociousness and all these other skills that you picked up along the way. You said you went to, like, every school you went to uh, throughout your childhood was Adventist, which is one of the larger denominations of Protestantism. What was high school like for you? So you'd already kind of gone through this childhood of having lots of hurdles put in front of you by your parents. They didn't tell you that these were like really difficult tasks, but so you just kind of rose to the occasion without realizing that there was anything special about it. Uh, But what was your life like in school with other kids?
2: Yeah, like you said, you know, there's about 25 million people that worship weekly in the Adventist church. Um, A lot of people don't realize how big of a presence the Adventist church has in education, but the Adventist church is associated with uh, a little over 8,500 Educational institutions operating in over 100 countries around the world, with about 2 million students worldwide. And a big emphasis of the education is on holistic education, focused on mental, physical, social, spiritual health, intellectual growth, and service to humanity to form a core values that are essential to life. With that said, even though that was the push for high school, I was a rebel. In high school and in elementary school, I was actually really good with my grades. But in college, I didn't really care about the tests and things like that. I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, and I was always working on my own projects or doing my own shows or performing music in studios with a lot of the big and R&B artists like Kelly Rowland and Gucci Man and people like that. That was like my focus, and I, I almost actually quit college. But my mother emphasize the importance of starting something and finishing it, and that when you set your mind on doing something, that it's important to see it through. Obviously, you do have to know when to quit on certain things, but as you're going through it, to pick up friends and lessons along the way. And so I I really got some of my best friends through high school and college. I also established really intimate relationships with my teachers and my pastors. Because um, if you think about um, Adventist education, and I didn't say this, but my elementary school had 50 students. I think my high school had 100 students and my college had 2,500 students. And so when you're in an intimate environment like that, you have direct interaction with your teachers that are mentoring you and really strong peer networks of small circles of people that stay with you for life. That's something that's persisted not just through college, but even in my professional life and even to what we're doing today with Career Karma and with my co-founders, small circles, mentorship, guidance has been key. And the pastors really showed me a lot about leadership because a lot of times pastors are, are giving, but nobody gives back to them. So they're dealing a lot with people's problems and they're kind of like therapists for people, but they really showed me how to be a visible example of strength, how to communicate um, how to organize, and how to do things for the community. So.
1: so you went through high school, and you said in college you were focused primarily on entrepreneurialism to the detriment of your academics, but <laughs> it worked out. I mean, you were able to get a pretty good job. You went mm-hmm. and worked at a company called BMO Capital Markets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, a bank?
2: It's an investment bank, yeah. So they have a retail banking practice or corporate banking practice, uh, which is BMO Harris. And then they have BMO Capital Markets. They used to be called Harris Banks, but then BMO bought them. Um, They're Canadian bank, Bank of Montreal. Um, and I was on the investment banking side, focused on the food, consumer, retail group. But to get into investment banking is it's very difficult um, if you don't go to a school that's a target school. So target schools are like the Ivy League schools, like you know Brown and Harvard and Yale. Um, And you have to have like really high GPAs and you have to have an internship. And I didn't have any of that.
1: Yeah. How did you go about doing that?
2: Yeah. I discovered a website called Mergers and Inquisitions. And the founder of Mergers and Inquisitions wrote a, a, he had a publication, very similar to Free Code Camp. And he essentially was writing articles about what a day in the life is for an investment banker. And he really emphasized exit opportunities. And the fact that most people that do investment banking don't do it because they want to be a banker and make a lot of money, they do it for the exit opportunities, where if you have an investment bank on your resume and you work there for three years, then the world views you as smart, quote unquote, and then you can do whatever you want in a career after that. And after reading all these publications, he launched a pilot program called Breaking Into Wall Street which was a financial modeling course that was a beta program. And I was one of the first uh, people to sign up to the beta. And through that course, I taught myself financial modeling. Once I understood the recruiting process, I blogged all the reasons why I wouldn't be hired, told people I was going to do it, and kind of broke my way into Wall Street.
1: Wow. So definitely like an outsider, and you used online resources to... Essentially self teach.
2: Yeah. It's a it's a combination of online resources to self teach. But I would also say going back to like the value of people, because like you know, at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't matter if we're in this world of ones and oh's and like tech or whatever, it's it's all about people. Unfortunately, there was a lot of amazing things that I got from my education and, and I've been in schools, but none of the alumni from my my college actually was an investment banker. A lot of schools have A big value that one of the biggest values that they add when you go to a a, a famous school is an alumni network. And so what I had to do was find people that I knew in Atlanta and in other places that were investment bankers that either were people that my friends knew or I had to create those relationships and then leverage them to get the interview. Because if I applied through the website, nobody would hire me or even listen to me. So it was a combination of getting the skill set, to your point, but then understanding what the minimum barrier of social skills are in order to tell my story, break in, establish code outreach, and, and successfully make it through Super Days, which resulted into interviews with all the top investment banks that you can imagine, and me ultimately deciding on moving to Chicago.
1: What was it like living in Chicago after having lived in Atlanta? They're very different climates, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. 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 Chicago, mm-hmm. for those uh, listening who don't know, is I think like the third largest city in the U.S. behind New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's huge. Mm-hmm. And it's got a huge financial industry, especially like commodities and things like mm-hmm. that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to your point, some people call Atlanta hotlanta. Um, and Chicago's the windy city. Um, and it's extremely cold when it's the winter. But during the summer, it's amazing. What's interesting, the first thing that jumped out to me between Chicago and and Atlanta is that Chicago has Midwestern hospitality. So it's not Southern hospitality. It's not as like, it's not the same as that, but they definitely have like really nice values. Like there's a rich culture, very strong arts culture, similar to Atlanta um, as well. Uh, uh, Really good music, really good events, very good theater. I was on the auxiliary board for the Joffrey Ballet. When I was in Chicago, my teacher's wife was a ballet dancer, so I've, I've always been into dance as well. What I love about Chicago versus like New York and other cities, honestly, Chicago is actually my favorite city, and I'll say that is that it's a city that's big, but you could wrap your hand around it, like where like in New York, it's so big you can't really like. This is this is the wrong word. New York is not conquerable, like. Chicago you can rise up and like see your growth. I think that Chicago really taught me a lot about corporate America and a lot about perception and how to how to survive in a corporate world outside of your skill set. Like when you're trying to get into the corporate world or if you're trying to break into tech, it's easy to think that the way that you're going to rise is through your skills technically but the way that you rise is actually through your non-technical skills and understanding how to communicate um, and be creative and like manage your your perception which is also your story.
1: Stories play an extremely important part in how you process and understand the world and specifically for you Ruben you are a really big advocate for people getting their personal stories down nice and concise and being able to quickly Explain mm-hmm. what they're all about to new people. How did you come to that conclusion that stories were so important?
2: I mean, to even get the um, into investment banking, I had to explain why I wanted to be an investment banker. Just like when people come to me for career karma, you know, one of the first things that I ask them is like, why do you want to become a software engineer? And you usually want to give an answer that's deeper than money. And for a lot of people, like in the beginning when I was telling my story, it was hard for me to to explain why a banker, why, why a cellist wanted to become an investment banker. and But once I figured out how to bridge that story, which essentially I was just like, you know, as you can imagine, as a classical musician, you often come in contact with business people. A business person told me that learning how to become an investment banker would teach me business skills in a short amount of time. And a lot of artists don't focus on business. And if I wanted to become a successful musician, then I should do investment banking for one to three years. Then the story makes sense, right? But you usually want to break your story down in a way that doesn't just convey that you have the skills, but that you are a good fit within the organization and that at the end of the day, that they like working with you, right? Like there's a lot of, if you think about the MBA, like there's a lot of people, they all know how to shoot a ball, they all know how to, you know, pass, they all know how to do all the all the fundamentals of basketball. But at the end of the day, it's about chemistry. And so if you have a million coders on free code camp that are applying for the same job and they all have the perfect resume and the perfect credentials and the perfect everything, what's gonna make you different? What makes you different is who you are. And like Naval says is no one can compete on being you than you, all right? And so really embracing who you are and learning how to communicate that is a way to not just differentiate yourself, but also develop a superpower. Because what is normally weird to people when they're younger, or like they're they're embarrassed about when they're younger, a lot of times becomes their superpower when they're older. So learning how to communicate that early and often is key.
1: Awesome. And if you had to explain yourself just in like 30 seconds, how would you do it? What would be your 30 second
2: Elevator pitch for you. Mm. Is this a in an interview or who I am now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's say hypothetically, you walked into somebody and you're like, "Oh, this is a potential investor or a potential client." You know, how would you explain within thirty seconds who Ruben Harris is and what he's all about?
2: Yeah. So fundamentally, I help people do what they love, uh, which translates into a job that helps them put food on the table. Um, And I run an organization that helps people get a high-paying job in tech in less than 12 months by matching them to job training programs and people that have done it before. I'm starting with coding boot camps, but over the next 10 years, I want to help a billion people. So that's kind of like who I am. And so when I think about my title as CEO, I don't think about it as chief executive officer. I think about it as create every opportunity and at the end of the day I want to create opportunities for people.
1: Thanks for indulging me. I was just really curious how you applied that wisdom in terms of your own personal story
2: to bring that back a little bit. When I was in the in the bank and I got in successfully, one of the vice chairs told me, you know, Reuben, you you broke the tech. Congratulations. I want you to know that If you help people, a lot of people here are like very money driven. If you help people put food on the table, everything else will come. And like that's when I changed the mindset of like wanting to help uh, to be a billionaire to wanting to help a billion people. And like if you really, if you really focus on helping people in a genuine way, and you can like really just like continue to to increase that exponentially, you will always be successful.
1: Let's talk a little bit about how you made. The jump from finance. So, first of all, you were living in Chicago. You were making pretty good income as an investment banker. What triggered you considering tech as a next step?
2: Yeah, so it was a combination of a few things. So, like um, when I got into investment banking um, in Chicago, I, I ended up getting recruited by another bank in Atlanta. Uh, and, and that's where I met my first co founder, Is a bank called Suntress Robinson Humphrey. His name is Archer Meister. And he has a twin brother uh, named Timur Meister, who is, we're all now co-founders. And essentially, we were there in Atlanta at the beginning of the like rise of the tech industry. Like Even when I was in Chicago, that was when 1871 in Chicago was first starting off. So when we were in Atlanta, we were working in a building right across from Atlanta Tech Village. When we got to Atlanta, there was the... Atlanta Tech Village that was just coming up and BitPay was just coming up. There was a bunch of other things that were going on. And so we knew that we knew that tech was going to be this big wave because everyone in the investment bank was talking about it. And because we were always um, involved with a lot of the university recruiting, a lot of the people that were historically trying to get into investment banks were talking about technology. And we knew that we wanted to start something in tech but none of us had skills to be tech leaders. And so that's when one of our buddies left the bank to go to Flatiron School in New York. And that's when he met another investment banker, was Jack Altman, who's the brother of Sam Altman from White Combinator. And that's how we discovered uh, coding bootcamp Flatiron School. And then uh, Archer and Timor said that they wanted to become software engineers. And they decided to do hack reactor app academy and i decided that i was going to learn things around distribution and like master distribution and sales and business development we knew that uh tech was going to be this big wave and so um that's that's when we decided it when we just started seeing those trends
1: at this point you were living in atlanta you'd already hooked up with timur and archer tell me a little bit about them so they're ukrainian americans first generation
2: yeah so they're ukrainian americans uh, we, we, wrote a, um, we wrote a blog post about their story called The Reality of Breaking into Startups, the First Product You Build is Yourself. Uh, but they immigrated from Ukraine to New York in middle school um, and then went to school at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. more when I met him, he was working at Auto Trader as a scrum master and project manager. And then Archer was an investment banker. I moved to San Francisco first without knowing anybody. And I got a job three weeks later at Alt School. And then Timor and Archer, they ended up working at funding circle as engineers all the way until IPO. And then Timor ended up working at um, in the augmented reality sector at an organization called Blipper. We we became fast friends when we first met in Atlanta. When I met Archer and Timor, and this is, you know, going back to kind of like some of the inklings of career karma, we knew that we wanted to start a company. We didn't know what kind of company it was. But the first decision that we were faced with was like, what are we going to do? What skill set are we going to focus on? And our North Star for CareerCom was empowering people to make their most important career decisions. And the first decision that Archer and Timor had to make was which bootcamp are they going to go to? Are they going to focus on a bootcamp? Focus on JavaScript? Are they going to focus on one? Focus on Ruby? Are they going to do it full time? Are they going to do it part time? What prep are they going to do? They ultimately decided on. Um, one focusing on front end and the other one focusing on back end. And they would do that while I look for a job and then they moved out um, after they got in. And then we, we all kind of like lived together. You brought up about the mindset. The mindset was before starting our own company, it was important for us to work inside of companies first. And we would do that for about three years and leverage those insights by going to different companies and really get to know how these companies work, um, and then come back together and start our own thing.
1: That's really interesting. So, you knew pretty early on that you wanted to start a project with Arter and Teemer. How did you know?
2: How did I know that these were the right ones? I mean, it's a good question. I think that, um, you know, when you think about raising money or starting a company, you know, venture capitalists, one of the first things that they're going to ask you is, is who's technical. But then the the fundamental question is like, how do you know each other? Because one of the biggest reasons for a company blowing up is because a co-founder blow up or a, co- a company dying is because a co-founder blow up and not knowing each other in conflict. And so for some reason, you know, from day one, knowing Archer and Timor, we just, we just hit it off. Archer was buying and selling contemporary art, and we love talking about art because I was a cellist. They were doing real estate things, like they we just we couldn't stop talking about business. We liked the same movies, we liked the different things. We all have our own unique personalities, but it, we just clicked. And we didn't. It wasn't a orchestrated plan to start a company, this specific type of company. We had all kinds of ideas. It was just more like we just hung out together. A lot of people skip that step. Like co founder dating is not like. It's not the best approach. I think it, it can work. Think about it just very similarly to just like regular relationships. Like you wanna really get to know each other on a friend level first, which is very similar to like what we really orchestrated inside of like the breaking of stars and in, in the career karma communities is like really making sure that like people know each other on a deep level first before starting and building things together. So I've met a lot of people I've shared my philosophies and I've heard theirs and this one clicked the last five, six, seven years that we've known each other have felt like a day. And I plan on continuing to work with them for years to come. Um, so yeah.
1: That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations on forging such a solid bond, uh, with the
2: brothers. With the brothers, we're triplets, (laughs) fraternal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you had this long-term plan where you were all going to work at different companies and you all worked at completely different types of companies. You worked at an education company. Um, they worked at like finance companies and other uh, types of companies. How did you go about planning so far in advance? Cause that's really impressive that you were just like, Look, we're going to hit pause for three years and go out and gather additional skills. And, and that's one of the things I always tell people like go make, mistakes on somebody else's dime, work for somebody else before you try to create your own company or start your own project so you can learn from another organization first. And But you all had the wisdom to do that.
2: I mean, I think what we, what we realize is that companies are increasingly realizing that they're going to have to build talent to remain competitive because their current supply of talent is tapping out. And when we were exposed to boot camps, we realized that boot camps are the fastest way to get a high-paying job in tech in less than 12 months. Um, apprenticeships were starting to kind of become more common. Um, you started seeing like, and we'll talk about the, the, the labor market later, but like we, we really started seeing a shift in the way talent is developed and recruited. And we realized that if we didn't move, then things were going to change. Like even the way that we, we blogged, like when I, when I blogged, uh, my story to get into investment banking it was on Posterous. and then it was acquired by Twitter and then I had like blogger and WordPress but then like when I wrote the the story about breaking the startups it was on Medium but then I realized like people don't really read as much anymore so then we got to do podcasts and then like people on podcasts like some people listen to podcasts but like the majority of people that listen to podcasts are rich people so we got to expand to to YouTube and create that you know video because people watch things and we always saw these different shifts. And so, what we realized is that a lot of people don't succeed at doing what they do because they didn't do their homework early on. They didn't pay attention to what the trends were. Um, and so, we wanted to kind of like get ahead of the new wave and not wait and just kind of dive right in and recognize that a lot of times we may not have everything figured out. And investing time and in figuring it out will pay dividends later. And back then, boot camps didn't have part-time programs like they do today. It was just full-time, it was tuition up front or deferred tuition with App Academy. And you just kind of like had to quit your job and go there and figure it out. Like same thing, I had I quit my job, I had a place to live for a month. And the advice that was given to me is like, if you want to break into tech, just move to the West Coast, this magical place, you'll figure it out. But for most people, that's toxic advice. Most people will go through a psychological breakdown trying to make that type of transition happen. And the the industry will chew them up. So because we're we're a little different from a personality perspective, we we were able to like make it happen. And then we we noticed that we always wanted to serve others, and we we're able to help other people's make it happen. And so we wanted to start documenting those stories on the on the podcast because the tech media wasn't really covering a lot of those those stories as well. So um, you know we, we realized that for us to understand the shifts, it was important to talk to other people that were like us that figured out how to get into these companies. Um, and so that's why we started featuring stories of people from that were older, or younger, or, or from different sexes or religions, um, veterans, people that have traditional backgrounds that actually worked at these companies um, before we moved out. And then we created a podcast around that, um, that it essentially became a really strong source of truth of information and tactical advice that doesn't exist anywhere else.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about your podcast, because that's how I heard about you all. And uh, you have been very regular with the Breaking into Startups podcast. And how many episodes have you had up to this point?
2: 115.
1: 115. And they're each like an hour-long interview with different people. I mean, it's just a profound resource. And I'm going to link to it uh, in the show notes. If anybody hasn't subscribed, you should absolutely subscribe. Let's talk about it a little. First of all. I want to talk about the intro. You've got one of the most memorable intros of any podcast. There's a line in there. It says you're either at the table or you're on the table. Tell me a little bit about the, the philosophy behind the Breaking into
2: Stardust yeah. podcast. So either you're at the table or on the table, getting eaten is a, <laughs> a heavy phrase. Um, and, and it actually came when I first moved to San Francisco and I didn't know anybody. I saw a graffiti wall that said, trust your struggle. Um and I was trying to break into tech really hard. And the Lyft driver that was taking me home when I only had a little bit of money, which we could talk about later, he kind of like explained the importance of of staying ahead of trends like what we were talking about before. And he mentioned that line, either you're at the table or on the table getting eaten. And the reason why that's important is because in the media today, you know, automation and future work and robots are taking our jobs is like super popular, but like automation has existed since the beginning of time and people have always gotten more advanced with more things and technology has replaced like things that were existed before and people have always had to get new jobs. But what we realized when we were in Atlanta is that this big tidal wave was coming and it was going to like wipe out a lot of people that don't know what's going on. But that doesn't have to be the case. If we can alert them, that a wave is coming and we can teach them how to surf, they can learn how to ride it, right? And so we thought it was very important to put that line early on in the intro of the podcast. So people, it kind of like wakes you up. And with the podcast, we wanted to make sure that everything that you listen to has action items that you can take to elevate yourself. Because if you think about um, a lot of these stories that are inspirational by like famous CEOs or venture capitalists or even a rags to riches story. A lot of times there isn't specific action items that you can take today. You can just become a fan of that person. We didn't like that. We wanted you to be able to connect with that individual. We wanted you to be able to know what you can do today in order to get to that same point. And at the end of every episode, you could have the contact information to reach out to them. When we first moved here, all the media was focused on CEOs and VCs and not the people that were actually building the company. All the workers in the back of the kitchen that are making the food that you're eating at the table. right? So we wanted to highlight the people that were in the kitchen, not just the chef. That was our big thing, and that's a niche that we've continued to dominate. Um, some people call that tech's invisible workforce versus the visible workforce that traditionally went to college, but most of the working world never went to college. And so we wanted to highlight those voices Um, give them power and build a platform that they can share these resources with. And it's not designed to make us famous. So yeah, that's what it's about.
1: And at what point did you all decide that you wanted to expand beyond just having a podcast and actually create a platform associated with helping people break into startups and break into tech?
2: We, We started to do that when people started showing up. So like people would listen to podcast episodes and then they would hear a location where someone hangs out, and then they would show up and say, "Hey, I heard you on the podcast. What do I do next? I just graduated, or what do I do next? I just like moved here from here." And people were actually like doing the things that we were saying in the episode, and we we're like, "Wow, okay, so we need to we need to make something happen." So we created a chatbot that will point people to the job training programs that they want. Right, because like in the beginning, the podcast was pretty much across all skill sets in tech, or like the majority of that that you don't normally hear about, like product management, uh, or how to become a, a specific type of developer, sales, design, like growth, like these different roles that like aren't really traditionally taught in college, but still sustain you very well. And then because bootcamp started to become more and more popular and know, thousands of them started popping up across the nation, we realized that the chatbot that we created helped hundreds of people get jobs. But what we realized is that pointing people to the right job training program is helpful for people that are naturally disciplined, like me and my co-founders. But for most people, they need a little bit more help with motivation and guidance and discipline and habit creation and routines and things like that. And so, That's how we realized that uh, we needed to do something that was bigger than just a chatbot. And it was where where Career Karma started to become something we started thinking about creating.
1: So Career Karma, the main goal is to provide extrinsic motivation to help people power forward uh, through all the different setbacks. Yeah, so Career Karma is an
2: app. And essentially, it's, it's a marketplace that matches people to job training programs, starting with coding boot camps. So when somebody downloads our app, they go through a three-week process called the 21-Day CK Challenge, and then the first seven days, they do something called Fast Track, where the schools or the job training programs have given us everything that they need to know qualitatively, and they create a profile that gets them automatically accepted into their child- schools based off of their goals and needs in one click through a Common App. And then over the rest of the 14 days and the 21-day challenge, they get ready technically to pass the technical exams at these schools. And during that time period, the schools are applying to them and making different offers uh, rather than the individuals applying directly to the schools. On the school side, the schools have software to manage everyone that's applying to them and really understand where people are in real time to be able to provide them the support that they need or the guidance that they need at different steps. And so fundamentally, that's essentially how it works. Our North Star is to help people make their most important career decisions. And the first decision is which which bootcamp is best for them. And people can rest assured that every school on the career carbon platform has been battle tested through thousands of people going through these programs and personally vetted by us so that they know that these are people that, that will get them the job that they want in the time that they want. So, Career Karma, how did you come up with that name? It's a good question. Um, so, for us, it's very important for us to listen to people. Like we always have ideas about what we think that people want, but it's important for us to talk to people to understand if we are actually making something that they want, and more importantly, what they need. Um, so, you know, before even starting Career Karma, and that's a very Y Combinator thing. We just finished Y Combinator on one to twenty nineteen. We listen to investors that have been investing in solutions for workforce development. And honestly, I think that workforce development and skills gap issues are probably one of the biggest issues of our time because we cannot create things without people. There's no such thing as a self-made person. We cannot solve problems without each other. And so, you know, what we did is is sit down with people that have spent 10, 20, 30 years in this space to understand what has worked and what has not worked during this time. And the description that I gave you about career karma, it has always been the idea and the karma energy piece was around where career karma will always be free for people. And the only cost is when they get to the next level in their journey, that they're willing to help people behind them in the future. When we explained that to uh, Jack, who initially introduced us to the idea of bootcamps through Flatiron and his buddy Adam Waxman. He mentioned, oh, wow, that sounds like career karma. Um, so we, we when we were talking to people, we didn't even have the name. And then we we're like, oh, that's a great name. We should call it that. So that's how the, the name came about.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about coding bootcamps because I think at this point, probably most of the people listening to this have heard of coding bootcamps. They're much bigger here in the US than they are in a lot of countries. But there's a, a wide range of different styles, different durations, uh, different payment options. Maybe you could just give us a very high level breakdown of coding boot camps and what they're all about as of 2019.
2: Yeah. So I think boot camps are the fastest way to get a high paying job in tech in less than 12 months. So I think what's interesting is that the, the boot camp model is rapidly expanding across skill sets, and the primary driver is something called an income share agreement. Um, An income share agreement is essentially a promise to an individual where it says, hey, I promise I'll get you a job above a certain salary. If you don't get that job, you don't have to pay anything. If you do get a job, then your tuition comes out of your new salary. That's fundamentally what it is. And we get a new bootcamp that has historically had the ISA option or recently added it to their offerings, asking to be a part of Career Karma, every week. We also get bootcamps focused on sales, marketing, data science, and more that want to be included as career paths for the Career Karma community as well. And some your listeners probably know that some bootcamps have been bought for large amounts like Trilogy for $750 million or uh, General Assembly for $400 million, but then some bootcamps have shut down like Dev Bootcamp. And while consolidation is happening, entrepreneurs have learned what works and what doesn't work and are increasingly introducing powerful new options like part-time, full-time, and self-paced, accredited collaborations with colleges, introducing support like living stipends and housing and food and laptops. And some companies are even partnering with boot camps to pay for it themselves and give guaranteed jobs at the end. To put a bow on this, I think something that's interesting to understand is that in America alone, the online income share agreement option has now given the 44 million working-age people that aren't making a living wage the opportunity to get a high-paying job in tech in less than 12 months. And internationally, you're also seeing boot camps like Microverse and HackerU that have income share agreements options as well. While income share agreements aren't the best options for everybody, we are hearing that if a school has a signal, has an ISA option, that's a signal that the schools aligned with their goal of getting a job. And historically, the world believed college is the only way to get a job. But now people are using things like not just boot camps, but even Free Code Camp. We've actually had several people that have come to us using Free Code Camp alone that have um, gotten a job through online courses as well. The, the thing with online courses that's difficult, which you brought up earlier around accountability, is that if you look at the 100 million learners that have tried MOOCs over the last seven years,
1: for people who aren't in the education field, MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Course. Like, uh, if you think about yeah. to the original, the machine learning courses.
2: Exactly, exactly, exactly. So these these massive open online courses are, are really powerful, and, and we're in a very beautiful day and age where all the information exists online, but people are faced with this paralysis by analysis, and they start something and they don't finish it, and it's a big lack of motivation or discipline and support. And so in Career Karma, not only will we match you to the right program, but we'll put you into a, a small circle of five to 20 people called a squad that will serve as an accountability system that won't just be with you into the bootcamp, but during the bootcamp, after the bootcamp, and, and they'll be friends with you for life, similar to me, Arch and Timor. And personally, I think that bootcamps are the only way to quickly address this, the skills gap and remain competitive in a tech-driven global world Because there's currently over half a million open jobs in computer science with only 50,000 people graduating from four-year universities and 40,000 people graduating from boot camps per year. And even if you round that up to 100,000, there's still over 400,000 open jobs right now. And in the next five years, it's going to be 1.4 million open jobs and only 400,000 people graduating from four-year universities. So a million people have to come from some form of alternative. (laughs) It's a lot of people. I know that's a little longer than a short summary. So, yeah. Half the world hasn't been connected to the world either. So that's a, a, we haven't even reached global connectivity. So this is a, a massive issue, a massive problem. The app store wasn't invented since 2008. So, you know, the app developer role hasn't been around for like more than, a little more than 10 years, right? So that's part of the reason why schools can't keep up because they didn't even know, they don't know how to teach it. Universities,
1: of course, have been the traditional way that people get the education, plus the class signal that universities traditionally convey. And just for some context on this because you and I I think both agree that university degrees are an ill fit for a lot of things. The way that universities came into being, rich kids essentially went there to study like liberal arts. Back in the day every university was a liberal arts university. And as of 1900, even in the most urbanized city in the world, London, only about 1% of people had gone to college so we went from 1% of people going to college to about in the US maybe 35% of people graduating from a four-year degree but 35% that's still a fraction of the total workforce what do you think in terms of the evolving role of university and i mean you and i both went to university so in a way and i always exactly. tell people whenever somebody says yo you don't need to go to college there's a good chance that that person did go to college themselves. <laughs> All right. So take that with a grain of salt. But uh, let's talk about the skills gap. What is the skills gap and is it real? Because it seems as of 2019, there's still a lot of discussion about the skills gap.
2: I mean, it's very real. I mean, I think if you think if it wasn't real, then there wouldn't be so many open jobs. Right. Like it was just, you could just like find everybody everywhere. Like, to your point, I think that, like, there are people that are talented that companies don't know how to find, um, and part of is a massive coordination problem, right? So you got to learn how to find talent that doesn't have a traditional signal. But because new roles like product management or things in machine learning and AI and data science are being created, cybersecurity, all these things are being created that aren't typically taught in a university, a lot of people are being taught things that for jobs that don't exist. Um, and I'm not saying that college is, is bad. To your point, we both went to college. I'm very grateful for college. I, I'm proud of my college experience. But if you look at 44% of recent college grads in America, they're either unemployed or underemployed. And free college doesn't solve that. Like vocational and technical training does. And vocational and technical training can be provided by college. Like in Germany, 59% of teens are doing it versus 6% in America, right? If you think about college, I think that college will evolve. The colleges that don't evolve will not be around. Um, I don't think college will completely go away, but I think that college is starting to increasingly realize that two to four years is too long, or maybe four years is too long, and you might want to have something that's like a accelerated program, whether it's one to, one to two years, that's specific. That is measured on an outcome, because the main difference between college and a boot camp is that a boot camp is only successful if you get a job. A college is successful if they get you a certificate and help you pass tests. If you don't get a job, it doesn't matter, All right? So, like that, that has to change. I think. I also think that um, it's important for colleges to be in line with the needs of the workforce, uh, because if you ask the question historically, like, what's the point of education? Depending on who you ask, some people will say it's to get a job. Some people will say it's to become a more well-rounded person. Um, I think that because of our economic situation, more people want to get jobs and our schools that want to survive are going to have to do that um, and are going to have to be able to adapt. And you're increasingly starting to see partnerships with boot camps and colleges. So Trilogy that I mentioned before um, that got acquired for $750 million, they have Boot camps on over 40 prestigious college campuses. There are these short form programs to get people trained. You're seeing online college starting to become big. It's good that people have MOOCs, um, but what I think is going to happen for college is income share agreements are going to become table stakes for colleges and boot camps across the board. And going back to what I said before, they're going to represent a signal that the school stands by the outcome of the student, where the school will never get paid unless the student gets a job and i think that is a perfect alignment for people and i think that if colleges do that that they will win and i think the most innovative thing or one of the biggest things that i hear from colleges that reminds me of career karma that i i'm excited about is um guided pathways where they are really helping people make important career decisions like helping them choose their major better and make different decisions that are aligned with a job along the way. And I think that that's a a cool manual process that's not scalable. Career Karma is the scalable way to help people make their most important career decisions.
1: When you say that Career Karma takes this almost career counseling role that a university would have, Mm -hmm. where the career Mm -hmm. counselor might be able to step in and say, oh, you should maybe take this course and this course if you're interested in going into this specific field. So Mm -hmm. you're operating at scale. What are some ways that you address some of those problems at scale?
2: Yeah. So when somebody downloads our app, the first thing that they do is start the 21-day challenge. And during the 21-day challenge, we there will be a quiz where we get a sense of what their goals and what their needs are and what are their wants, right? Because based off of that information, we're able to match them with one or more programs that are aligned with what they want to do next. It's not enough to match someone with a program that is interesting to them, because if you talk to a school and they talk to you, they're inherently going to be biased about their program. And so through Career Karma and going through the challenge, they're able to connect with people that are currently enrolled in the program that can give them raw information themselves. They're able to connect to people that are preparing for the program. They're able to connect to people that finish the program so they get like a real life consumer reports, a real life, better business bureau insight, like immediately from day one. Most importantly, they're able to find other people that are also kind of lost and confused, but have the reassurance that they have a guided pathway through the 21 day challenge that kind of like breaks down the different steps to get them to where they want to go. A lot of schools, if you if you run an ad and you're like, hey, I'm a coding bootcamp," they're marketing to people that don't even know what code is. They don't even know what a software engineer is. They just want to get a job that pays well, right? So going through Career Karma, we can literally take someone that doesn't know what code is and then 21 days, educate them on the entire space, get them technically ready, which is essentially the basics of learning how to code, introduce them to other people that have done it before teach them about the bootcamp market, teach them about the difference between college, teach them about finances and give them financial literacy and make them most importantly, accept themselves and, and see value in themselves. Cause nobody, a lot of times people have never told them that they're valuable and that they, that they're powerful. And it's a, it's a really beautiful thing to see, see that happen. I don't know if that answers your question, but I'll say that's like one of the biggest things. Absolutely. Let's
1: talk a little about running career karma. So, so far. So, you all went to Y Combinator, which is a pretty prestigious uh, accelerator program. I think it's harder to get into Y Combinator than it is to get into an undergraduate program at Harvard. What was that mm-hmm. process like? Tell Maybe you can just walk us through the entire application process and uh, the process of being there.
2: Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I've never gotten something the first time, right? So when you think about Y Combinator or any, like, decision in my career, like, it usually takes, like, multiple attempts and a lot of experimentation, a lot of iteration. Um, So when we quit our jobs um, around March of last year to try to get into Y Combinator, we thought we were going to get in there. We applied, and we got rejected, Um, you know, and that wasn't a cool experience. My brother was in, in App Academy at the time watching us, We were like, yeah, we're going to start this thing. And what I realized is that the reason why we got rejected was not because we didn't have a good idea, it's because we didn't know how to communicate very well. Uh, We were just presenting this big pie-in-the-sky, you know, workforce, like, social network for coding boot camps, which it still is, but it wasn't really laser-focused on, like, matching people to job training programs starting with coding boot camps. It wasn't laser-focused on this, like, this sliver, this like pre-existing network in amoeba form that could grow into something massive. And and the other thing is like, we hadn't really launched something. It was still an idea form. And so, you know, a, a famous thing that people talk about is like, you're nothing until you launch. So it's very important to launch something and have traction, but be very good at communicating what you do. And the entire time you're going to be drilled on, what do you do? And what you do has to capture the problem that you're solving for who, and is this repeatable in a massive market? And do you have some representation of being able to turn that into a a revenue model that turns into a billion dollar company? It's pretty much like what you wanna be focused on when you're talking about these things. For me, it was just around like talking to other founders that had successfully passed the interview and testing out my communication and iterating on that and just getting my one-liner down. And it really was a, a formative experience that really is something that I continue to work on today because as Career Karma evolves, the different stories that we tell to different people, whether it's a consumer, whether it's a podcast, whether it's an investor, whether it's more technical, all those stories are different. And so I have to really really practice that and it's something that i will continue to practice and and it's very similar to people in boot camps like when people graduate boot camps and and get into the job search a lot of people over rely on their technical experience and not on their ability to to communicate and if you look at triple byte results like 50 percent of engineering interviews fail for non-technical reasons and so we really emphasize the importance of communication not just as leaders of career karma, but also to users of career karma from day one uh, to make sure that that is something that they're comfortable with throughout their entire experience and growth as, as future leaders of the world.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for walking us through. So when you were going through Y Combinator, what was your day to day experience like? Could you walk us through like a typical day of you being in Y Combinator while you're building career karma?
2: I'm not sure if I could speak on that just because it's kind of like it's kind of um, confidential, a lot of stuff that happens inside of Y Combinator. But I would say that the main thing that we're being drilled on is like how to tell our story, what to focus on. We have group meetings with our partners to really understand how to learn from each other. We're really preparing for demo day. And demo day is where the biggest investors from all over the world show up. Um, And you're essentially presenting to them. You have two minutes on stage. And by the end, you're supposed to raise millions of dollars. And that's essentially what we did. For us, this was the first time Y Combinator uh, was doing Demo Day in San Francisco versus Mountain View. Um, And we were the ones that opened up the entire Demo Day. So was it nerve-wracking? Yes. That's an understatement. Was it thrilling? Yes, it was. And I would say... Outside of focus and communication and clarity, I think speed of iteration and experimentation is also a very big, a very big focus for us and something that we've taken away since we've been in the Y Combinator and we're going to continue to, to leverage our group partners. And I, w- I would also say the importance of mentorship. You know, a lot of times like we had a combination of both. Like we have our group partners, our, our group partners were Michael Seibel, Kevin Hale, um, Tim Brady, um, and we had different guests that pulled up. Um, these are seasoned veterans that have started multi-billion dollar organizations. But usually when, when people in Free Code Camp or people in, in career karma or breaking startups come to us, they're trying to talk to someone that has like 10 years experience as an engineer. But what we tell them is like, the person that's most valuable to talk to is someone that just got accepted into a boot camp. Because what's constant in, in tech and in education is change. Very similar to like, if you want to get into Y Combinator, you probably want to talk to me versus somebody that did it like ten, like five years ago, right? Because Y Combinator changed their admissions process as well, right? And so you, you always want to talk to somebody that's most relevant. And similar to Y Combinator, they have a people helping people model. They have this huge network of founders that are all helping each other without paying each other to help each other. And very similar with Career Karma, there's no monetary it's not a transactional relationship we help each other in the ecosystem because we're in this together and we care about each other we want to see each other win so i'm very grateful to be part of the the white combinator network i think it's, it's awesome to have leaders that have built organizations to to teach us about things and i think another thing that was fascinating about being in white combinator is like initially we thought that everyone had it figured out in there but that's not true you know at the end of the day, nobody has it all figured out. And similarly, like when you're in a coding boot camp or you're trying to learn a new skill set, you get imposter syndrome. But what actually eliminates imposter syndrome is like understanding that everybody is lost and everybody is more like directionally correct. And these mentors and these guides are helping you avoid curveballs that can put you on a on a death curve.
1: When you say a death curve, what do you mean by that?
2: I mean that there are no straightaways. I mean that when people are trying to build a company or are trying to get a new job to change their life and career company, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then, like, I figured it out. Life is over. Game over. Game one. But, like, more money, more problems, buddy. You know, like, product market fit is, like, it's a great goal and achievement for for a company, but there's inevitably going to be more problems. You, like you could look at a company like Facebook or Google or all these other companies they're dealing with new problems all the time right They just announced Libra the whole big tweet that just happened right like it, it never ends. there's always gonna be new curveballs. so you have to like stay mentally sound, stay mentally grounded and understand that like there are no straightaways and you have to keep your head in the game. And you have to be very mindful of the things that can set you off your path. And you never want to get comfortable. If you if you feel comfortable, that's your body telling you that you're ready to push harder. You're not growing. Challenges give you growth, and growth is life.
1: Right on. Well, on the nature of growth, and there are no straightaways, comfort is just your body telling you it's ready to work harder. What do you think the future of coding boot camps is, like both the near future... In the distant future?
2: So I think that um, in the near future, uh, we're going to see this continue to be a viable option. I think, again, I think income share agreements are going to increase across the board. You're going to see more and more entrepreneurs um, launching programs focused on this option, especially online, part-time, because most people can't quit their jobs to do it. Currently, there's over 300,000 people applying to coding boot camps every year with with less than 10% acceptance rate. I think you're going to see more and more people doing that. I actually think you're going to see the acceptance rate go higher. So let's say that like maybe 300,000 people a year over the next five to 10 years going towards these like types of options. I actually think that non-technical roles are going to be bigger in the future of work than they are today. So like sales, marketing, things like that. Because if you look at the big IPOs like Zoom or Slack or or Beyond Meat, that, that was big Growth primarily because of sales, marketing, and, and really strong distribution operational expertise. The training for that isn't really good, especially in sales. And so, I think you're gonna see more vocational programs like Flock J um, and SV Academy uh, really doing a good job in the non-technical domain of things. If you think about boot camps today, over 70% of them have bachelor's degrees. So most people in the world don't even know that boot camps exist. I think that once more and more people know that they exist more and more people are going to go down that path And the reason why i think that is like you have seven thousand people dropping out of high school every single day that's crazy like going back to the 44 million working age americans that don't have a college degree that aren't making a living wage like they need more options you see truck drivers that are going to be replaced by driverless cars and everything in retail and all these other things that are happening the only way to really level up is through some form of education and I think that that form of education is gonna be either a boot camp that's run on its own, a boot camp that's run by a college. But I actually think that the big future that you mentioned is gonna come from employer as payer model. Um, and you can see that with Adobe, doing Adobe Digital Academy, you can see that with Microsoft, you can see that with Cognizant and Trilogy, you can see that with all kinds of things like that. And the reason why I think that is if In the United States alone, like over a trillion dollars is spent on post-secondary education. A lot of that training and education, a lot of that comes from corporate America. And companies are going to realize that they have to build talent in addition to buy talent. And they spend so much money on university recruiting and events that has a very low ROI. I think that apprenticeships are at the same stage that boot camps were in five years ago, and that they're going to become more and more in vogue. And we're going to see a more vocational apprenticeship model today and you can hear a little bit about that on on our interview that we did with um gary vaynerchuk talking about this as well
1: awesome and uh yeah we can put a link to that interview in the show notes as well so just to recap what you said you think that employer sponsored continuing education is the biggest potential modality
2: of of continuing
1: education beyond even like coding boot camps or traditional four-year degrees Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i think Mm -hmm. so But I also think there's something else that I didn't mention. I also think that if Title IV, like, if, like, financial aid options and, like, if government, like, really puts a really strong stamp on, like, vocational training is, like, all right, like, people like Andrew Yang or if, like, Mike Rowe, like, really gets their way and, and, like, all the dollars that have that all the big billionaire philanthropists are pouring towards education start going towards vocational school. Then you're still you're going to see a flood of like people going towards boot camps alone. I think that corporate training will work because they they already spend a lot of money there. I think it'll be bigger, but that will, you saw Amazon they announced seven hundred million dollars to retrain a third their workforce. I think the employer run schools are going to be more focused on reskilling current talent. Boot camps are going to dominate training people that don't have the skills yet.
1: I think there's definitely like a historical precedent for that because in like the 1950s 1960s people didn't necessarily go to university they were coming back from World War 2 mm-hmm. <laughs> or the Korean War and they had to quickly integrate back into the workforce and back then employers spent a huge amount of money on corporate training and then gradually mm-hmm. 80s 90s early 2000s that started to to fall off as as employers became more and more dependent on universities or I wouldn't say dependent, but rather they kind of outsourced all that to universities, and they just started asking, "Oh, which university did this guy go to?" Okay, that's a that's a shortcut. He's probably a solid candidate, or oh, she went to that school. Great, let's hire her. You know, rather than actually putting in the the legwork to really drill into candidates and figure out if they'd be a good fit, and also to uh, help them gain the specific skills they need to be able to operate on the job. So what you're describing with coding bootcamps in a sense is almost like the same model that corporations used to have, but now it's it's outsourced to organizations that just specialize in that kind of corporate training. In this case, you know, coding boot camps. Yeah,
2: Yeah. If you think about like the one point something billion dollars that has been spent on diversity training in the last five years, but the numbers haven't changed. Like, you could literally spend that same amount of, on training like people from boot camps and you can get like 10,000 people trained. You know, it's like, and they're all like from whatever background that you want them to be from. You know, so it's like, it's really like, it's a very proven model. It works. Literally the corporation can communicate what the needs are to the school. The school works with the individual. They train them up. They get hired. Boom. Like, I think that the credential thing is interesting to think about, but I actually think that credentials don't really matter that much. Like your portfolio and what you know how to do matters. And what's difficult is getting the shot. And that goes back to the social skills and the, the social engineering skills, which is something that we'll help solve later. But um, that's for another conversation.
1: So as somebody who's been working in education and technology education for the past few years and has been exploring different problems, and possible solutions in the space. What's your overarching theory of everything regarding career change and getting into technology?
2: My overarching theory is that we've entered the end of occupational identity and we have to embrace lifelong learning and understand that changes lead to problems, which lead to solutions, which lead to changes, which lead to more problems, which leads to blah blah blah. Right? It like it, it never ends. And a lot of times when we when we make a career decision or when we decide to do something, we wanna do it we, we kinda gotta gotta get rid of the retirement mindset because I actually think that like momentum is power and like the less you move, the less alive you are. Um and A lot of times people that are are able-bodied actually hurt themselves by like being sedentary and like not moving and not not being in a constant state of flux. So like kind of embracing the change and embracing not knowing everything and embracing like kind of being underwater all the time, I think is is, is super important. So I think in general, like when I think about who I am and what I think about, just like always embracing learning and valuing learning, um, I think respecting our elders, but also recognizing that we can learn more from anybody. What's underappreciated is the importance of like a strong mind. And we should double down on understanding that the importance of psychology and, and mental strength and agility and value creativity. And something I like to talk about a lot is just that just accepting who you are. And just like we talked about a little bit earlier where your work doesn't define you. Like what you do is not who you are, where you went to school. is not who you are. You know, what company you've built doesn't define who you are. You are who you are. Um, and like, you should get a lot of power from that. And I'll say finally, pain comes from the same place that your power comes from. And if you, if you dig deep enough to situations that hurt you or are trying you, you can really get some power out of that. And like, always be looking for the lesson and let's stop with these zero-sum games like let's like focus more on collaboration over competition like how do we win together like how do how do i support free code camp and all the other organizations that are out here like it's not about just like taking everybody out right but at the same time competition is fun but it could be like the nba like we all compete but at the end of the day we're all friends and we can all win together so i'll say that's kind of like my general philosophy i don't know if that's a Concise thing, but that's how I think about it.
1: Awesome. Well thanks for filling us in on that and giving us this perspective. I want to close with a question that you close with on your podcast, Breaking Into Startups again. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes to them. But you always ask your guests, imagine you're going to a new city and you're just showing up all of a sudden and you have a hundred dollars in your pocket and you don't know anybody, you don't have any connections. How do you proceed?
2: Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I like to do is like, I have to decide what I want to do before I move to that city. If I don't know what I want to do and why I'm moving to that city, then I'm going to be lost. Right. So once I've understood what I want to do and why I want to do it, then I'm going to find out who are the major players in that city that are successful in that thing, um, that are willing to guide and are open to a cold interaction or, or even not open to a cold interaction, then I would figure out where they frequent, whether that's for coffee, whether that's for dinner, whether that's social events, whether that's blah, blah, blah. And so when I get to that city, I will already have the faces memorized, the names memorized. I will know something about their personal background that's not professional, that's aligned with my background so that when I meet them, I could strike, strike up a casual conversation. And I would just sit in the coffee shop and like order a cup of coffee. How, how many cups of coffee can you get? Like maybe 20 cups of coffee out of that, out of $100. So I would, I would like identify, you know, 20 locations at the right period of time and just like set a goal to make sure that I run into those people and while I'm waiting for that individual to frequent that location, I'll be sending anywhere from five to 20 emails a day to set up meetings at those specific locations and then really build out a network. That's literally what I did when I first moved out here. I literally mapped out every single coffee shop that I thought was hot um, in the Bay Area, whether that was Blue Bottle Coffee or Sightglass on 7th Street or um, Creamery and these other places. And I, I met some really powerful people, Sextant Coffee Roasters. I was able to like really meet powerful people just by by doing that, and it it led to that job at Alt School was created for me. It wasn't even on the. It wasn't even a job that. It wasn't just offline and not on the website. It was a job that was created for me um, after a coffee meeting on on Seventh Street.
1: Awesome man. Well, thanks for sharing your networking wisdom and how you were able to build these relationships to give you a big edge. Ruben, thanks again for. Sitting down with me and answering all my many questions, and for filling us in on a lot of the exciting things going on in the boot camp space and with Career Karma. Likewise, where can people find you, and what should people do to learn more
2: about you? Likewise, man, I'm really grateful to be here. I think the the best way to find me is is I'm just Ruben Harris on on every platform. Um, R-U-B-E-N, H-A-R-R-I-S. Um, but the best way to get in touch with me is to download the Career Karma app and send me a message and tell me that you heard this podcast and how much you love free, free code camp. And make sure you tweet Quincy um, and tag both of us in it. Um, or you can email directly at uh, Ruben at com. It is careerkarma.com if you want to just check the website if you don't have a phone. Also, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel, it's slash career karma. And obviously, the Breaking Stars podcast. Uh, We're going to be dropping um, weekly, bi-weekly life hacks on YouTube, and then the podcast will continue to drop as often as we can drop.
1: Perfect. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Free Code Camp podcast. If you found this helpful, be sure to tell your friends. Happy coding, everybody.